You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Bible Church of Paragool. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagool.com. Morning. Much better, much better. Hey, if you have a Bible, let's go to Psalm 51 this morning. <clears throat> Psalm chapter 51. Uh, if this is your first time with us, welcome. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Fellowship Paragould, and we especially want to welcome you in just a few moments. Uh, Pastor Luke will come up and he'll share, if you're interested in getting connected, he'll share ways that you can get connected with us and learn more information. Uh, but I just wanted to, to make sure that I mentioned that I am also very thankful to see you. If you are a first-time guest, we don't really expect anything from you. We're not going to try to make you feel awkward. Uh, we just want you to come and, and feel the love of God and the love from us and hopefully experience Him in a fresh way today. Uh, I know Luke will probably say something about this again, but it, it won't hurt for me to say it twice. Two weeks from today... All right, we will be at the crossing, okay? So if you show up here, you'll be the only one, okay? So um, two weeks from the day, that's Mother's Day, we will be at the crossing. Um, next week will be a little bit of a different service. Uh, we'll have kind of a stripped down uh, set, like our band will basically be here with acoustics. All the stuff will already be, our speakers will be there, so it should be interesting, to say the least. Uh, who knows what's going to happen next week, right? So just show up and uh, be a part of the adventure. Um, we have been so blessed that Paragold Cinema 8 has let us use this facility for so long. Uh, the way we even landed in here is when we were meeting in, uh, in uh, homes a few years ago, they called us and said, hey, we love what y'all are doing. We've heard about that. So why don't y'all just use our cinema every Sunday for free to meet in? And so um, for the last three and a half years, we said, well, at least let us pay utilities. So they've let us give them about $400 a month uh, just to use all these rooms and the projectors and everything. Isn't that insane? That's uh, just the way God's provided. Um, and so, uh, yeah, and, and, and he just, God continues to provide in, in very miraculous ways like that. And so, anyways, just make sure you don't show up here uh, two weeks from today. Um, Psalm 51 is where we are going to read, but before we do that, we're going to put the Lord's Prayer back on the screen for you. Um, we are working through the Lord's Prayer line by line, and today we're going to focus on that line, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Um, and in, in order to focus on that and to truly understand that, in just a moment we'll read Psalm 51 and we'll use that really as the passage um, that will help springboard into the message. But before we go to Psalm 51, let's read this together. Whenever Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, he said, pray then like this. You ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And now if you have your Bibles, you can look with me in Psalm 51 or I think we can throw it on the screen for you. I want to read just six more verses for you. Psalm chapter 51, starting in verse 1. This is a prayer from David to God. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in the truth, and in the end we're being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Let's pray together. 
Father, I thank you for each person who is here today. I know that you love each person dearly. They are here for a reason. And I know that there is a spiritual warfare constantly going on, even as I preach the word, where there is a real enemy who has come to kill, steal, and destroy from each person here. And what he wants more than anything right now is to distract us or to take the word and keep it from being planted in our hearts. And so we thank you, Holy Spirit. We thank you, God, that you are greater than the enemy. And we pray that right now, through the power of your spirit, that you will take this word and make it alive in our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I shared with you a couple uh, weeks ago, I believe, that five summers ago, I led a group uh, on a mission trip to Quito, Ecuador. And one of the um, special things about this for me was the opportunity to walk in Quito in the same place where one of my favorite missionaries of all time, Jim Elliott, once lived and died for the sake of the gospel. And if you're familiar with the story of Jim Elliot, it's really an incredible story. You can watch a movie called The End of the Spear that I think Hollywood produced uh, uh, about his life. And basically what happened is Jim Elliot, and was it three or four of the families? Anybody know? Fantastic. We'll all learn together. Let's say four. I'm pretty sure it's four. Uh, Jim Elliot and four other families um, from the U.S. decided to go to, uh, to move to Quito, Ecuador, to reach an unreached people group, a people who were considered to be hostile to Christians or to anybody else outside of their tribe. They were known as the Akua Indians. And so Jim Elliott and his wife and these other families moved to Quito. And long story short, they end up trying to slowly but surely build a relationship with these Indians by flying a plane over where their tribe is and dropping them like uh, food and other goodies and things like that to try to like let them know like, hey, we're friendly, we're here because we love you. And long story short, eventually they decide, Jim Elliott and uh, his companions decide they are actually going to go into the jungle unarmed. And their wives were like, you don't need to do this. What if they attack? And they said, well, we're ready for heaven, and they're not, so we'll let them kill us if they attack, which is just incredible in itself, isn't it? And so they go into the jungle to share the gospel. Long story short, they end up being speared to death, every single one of them, okay? This, as you can imagine, made, like, national news and world news because here are, like, these boys next door, right? I mean, just all American boys, good-looking guys that go over there to share Jesus with these Indians, and all of them end up getting brutally murdered. Now, what's really spectacular about this whole story is Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot's young wife, I think she was 26 at the time, and her child, what we all would have done if we were her is move back to the United States and live grieving the loss of her spouse, right, around the safety of her friends and family. But you know what she chose to do? Rather than moving back to America to grieve the loss of her husband, she said, you know what, I really believe God's called us to reach these Indians. So, true story, she moved into the jungle. She goes to these Akua Indians and she says, I'm Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of the man that you killed, and I want you to know that I forgive you for killing my husband. But even more importantly, there's a creator God who you actually long for and you don't even know it. And he, too, will forgive you of your sins. Not just the sins, but all of your sins so that you can experience the salvation and the satisfaction you have been longing for. And as I begin to think about that this story this past week and a lot of this text, I begin to wonder, how is it possible that Elizabeth Elliot was able to extend such radical, costly, and sacrificial forgiveness to a people who killed her husband... While there are many people today who claim to be Christians who live enslaved, even maybe right now, to bitterness and anger against others because they sinned against you. Or at the very best, like, you tolerate their existence. Like, how is it possible that this single mom, how is it she can find the love in her heart to move into a jungle, 
with her child, right, to eat and play and live and love these savages who tried to ruin her life, while there are scores of people, maybe even some sitting here today, who find it difficult to love anyone who disrespects you in any way, shape, or form. I began to warn about that this past week, and as I began to research this story, I, I, began to, uh, I came across this interview with Elizabeth Elliot, where basically she was asked by a reporter that same question. How were you able to do this? And you know what her answer was? She pointed to this portion in the Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. And basically what she went on to say in this interview is that she is absolutely convinced that her sin against God is far worse than anybody else's sin against her could ever be. And that if God could forgive her of her sin against him, how could she not now forgive others of their sin against her, even the sin of killing her own husband? You see, what Elizabeth Elliot points us all to today is a theme throughout Scripture. And here's the theme. It's that forgiven people forgive people. It's this idea that if you believe God is no longer holding your sins against you, you will find it impossible to hold the sins of others against them. And therefore, what we can conclude is if you are hanging on to bitterness today, if you are hanging on to resentment, or at the very best, you are tolerating others' existence because of what they have done, then what that means is that you have yet to experience true forgiveness. And the good news is today, you can experience it. There is a God, a creator God, that all of us have sinned against. And because of our sins, we deserve damnation. We deserve punishment. But this God stands ready today to pour out forgiveness on you. And in order to really receive this forgiveness, to understand this forgiveness, I think we need to go to Psalm 51. And the reason I want to go here is because in Psalm 51, it's a passage that shows us how to go from just knowing about forgiveness to experiencing true forgiveness that not only frees us from the sin in our lives, but it frees us from the grudges and the bitterness that we have against others because of their sin against us. And if you notice, if you have your Bible, you'll see at the beginning of this passage in Psalm 51, it says that this is a psalm by David. This is a prayer from David, and this prayer arose after Nathan the prophet went to him after he had had an affair with Bathsheba. Now, some of you may know the story, some of you may not, so let me give you some of the details. What had happened is King David walked up on his roof one day, and he looked and it says that he saw a beautiful woman who was out bathing on her rooftop. David sees this, he gets excited, he says, I've got to have that woman, so he calls for a servant and says, go fetch me that lady. His servant says to David, don't you know that's actually Uriah's wife? David says, I don't care, bring her to me anyway. And so the servant brings Bathsheba, David lays with her, ends up getting her pregnant and thinks, "Uh uh-oh, now I'm in trouble. What am I going to do? Here I am, I'm the king of Israel, I've got this great reputation, I'm supposed to be a man of God, but now I've got this lady pregnant before we're even married, so what will I do? You know what David decides? He actually goes and has her husband, Uriah, killed so that he can legally marry her and try to convince people that actually we got pregnant after we got married. So David does this, he thinks he's scot-free, but then up walks the prophet Nathan. And here's what Nathan does, he comes up to David and he says, Hey David, you want to hear a story? And David's like, sure, I love stories, tell it to me. And and the prophet Nathan says to David, so there's this rich man and he has a whole lot of sheep. And then there's this one little poor man who has one little bitty lamb. 
And because David gets, or because this rich man with all these sheep gets hungry, what he decides to do is rather than taking one of his own sheep and killing it and using it for a meal, he takes this one little man's little lamb, he kills it so that he can have it for dinner. And then he says to David, he says, what should we do with this rich man? And David says, we should kill him. And then Nathan looks right at him in one of the most prophetic, just direct statements. He says, you're the man. That's you. You're the rich man. And immediately David is just broken. He falls. And in his brokenness, Psalm 51 is birthed. And it is through David's confession here, we ourselves can discover how to taste true and complete forgiveness that will lead actually to a changed life from the inside out. And the first thing that we learn about true forgiveness is this, is that if we want to experience forgiveness, the first thing that has to happen is we have to admit that we need forgiveness. We have to admit that we are people who need forgiveness. If you look again in verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What David is talking about here is he says, Look, you want to know why I've acted the way I've acted? Do you want to know why I committed adultery and then murdered Uriah? Here's why. Because like all human beings, I am born a sinner. In other words, what David is saying here is the reason I've done what I've done is not because, oops, I made a mistake and hey, we're all, you know, like just kind of having a bad day. No, David says the reason I did what I did is because I am acting out of an evil heart that has been with me since the day I was born. The reality is, if you want to experience true forgiveness, you need to realize that you are not born good. You need to realize, like all human beings, you were actually born sinful, and therefore you stand from birth in need of the forgiveness of God. And I, I tell people this all the time. If you don't believe we are born sinful, the best case study is what? Go have kids. Right? And you will watch. Your kids will do incredibly sinful things that you never even had to teach them how to do. It just comes natural to them. And if you don't want to go have kids, just come to my kids' t-ball game tomorrow night. Can I get an amen? I mean, Luke and I, and, and we got several others in the church that are coaching this team, and it's like every t-ball game, man, it's like they'll have a ball hit to one of the player, and then there's just this dog pile where they're like coming in with the knee, like, bam, like trying to get the ball from each other, and they're fighting over it. And it's like you just need one person to be a bouncer, don't you? Like from the kids, like try to keep them from fighting each other. My daughter one game this week because she couldn't catch a few balls, just threw her glove down and her hat and just began to cry. And I'm like, Nora, aren't you happy for these kids? Like, we should celebrate them. She's like, no. And it's like, yeah, like, why are you this way? Because she's a sinner. Just like you and just like me. We are all born, whether you believe it or not, with this attitude that life is really all about me. Life is really about me getting what I want when I want. And this is what David is talking about here. He says, whenever he says, my, in sin my mother conceived me, he's not saying that she was a sinner for having me. He's saying that I was born a sinner. He's saying the same, we've got to get this, he's saying the same sins that led me to act like a fool when I was a kid are the exact same sins that have led me to being an adulterer and a murderer. David says, I was born thinking life is all about me. I was born basically saying, I want what I want, when I want, no matter what. And because I did not seem to put, not try to put these sins to death, 
It eventually led to the death of another. It eventually led to destruction. If we are going to taste true forgiveness today, you have to get this. You are born a sinner, and your sin is far more serious than you could ever imagine. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain is mad at his brother Abel. And if you remember Genesis 4, God comes to Cain, and what does he say to him? He says, Cain, that anger in your heart is like a beast crouching at your door, and if you refuse to do nothing about it, it will absolutely devour you. If you let that sin stay inside of you, if you leave it unchecked and unabated, it will eventually take you down. And as extreme as that sounds, it's the way the Bible talks about the same sin that you and I are born with. Maybe some of you sit here today and you go, hmm, not me. Not me, dude. I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, sure, there was 2012, but other than that, I think I've got it together. Maybe you look at the story with David, and, and honestly, in your heart, you're thinking, I would never do something that stupid. And if you say that, I'm telling you, you sit here right now, deceived, and you're in denial. And I'm not saying that you will commit adultery physically. I'm not saying you will murder somebody, but listen to me, guys, real carefully. If you refuse to acknowledge you have sin in your heart and you refuse to deal with this, one day you will be shocked by how sinful you really are and how bad your sin has gotten. The truth is today, the first thing we need to understand is we are far worse than we could ever imagine. We are all plagued with sin because Adam's sin, Romans 5 says, that he has passed that sin on to every single person. If you are a daughter or a son of Adam, you are born with sin. But here's the good news. There's a way out. There's a way to experience forgiveness. There's a way to experience freedom that we are all longing for. And the Bible says that the way out is through this thing called repentance. Now, what is repentance? I mean, if you're like, repentance, isn't that just basically saying you're sorry? If that's what you think repentance is, there's a good chance you've never repented. Repentance is not simply saying, oops, I'm sorry. But repentance, according to the Bible, is two things. One, and we're going to dive into both of these in much more detail. One, it is a full, clean confession of your sin. A full, clean confession of your sin that is accompanied with what I'll call a deep heart renunciation of that sin. Now, I will dive into both. First, what do I mean by full, clean confession of sin? Look with me in verse 4. David says in his prayer to God, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. If you notice, what is David doing here in his prayer? He is taking full responsibility for his sin. He's taking full responsibility for his actions, and he's doing it, listen, without making excuses and without qualifications. When David says in verse 4, I have done what is evil in your sight, notice he's not shifting the blame here. He's not saying, you know why I am the way I am? Because I had lousy parents. You know why I am the way I am? Because of my environment. I am the way I am because of my crazy spouse. I've done what I've done because of him or because of her or because of that. No, he points the blame at himself. He doesn't say, yeah, sure. I mean, okay, so I had sex with Bathsheba. But you know what? She shouldn't have been naked like that. I'm just a dude. What do you expect? In fact, whenever I called her over there, I was just going to talk to her. And she like threw herself on me. I mean, I can't just, you know, like stay away from her forever. Or he doesn't say, you know what? If Uriah wouldn't have been a punk husband, if he would have treated her right, like she would have never came to me anyway. So I'm just loving her the way her husband should have been loving her. He doesn't do that. 
Nor does he say, hey, and the reason I killed Uriah is obviously like, I've got a job. And I've got to keep my job. I had to kill this sucker. If I didn't, right, people would know I'm a sinner. They could maybe remove me as king, and then the whole kingdom would fall apart. Which, by the way, ended up happening right after this anyway. He didn't do this. No, David, in verse 4, is taking full responsibility for his actions. He says, I did this, and it was evil in sight of God. If you want to taste true, life-changing forgiveness, I'm telling you, it will only happen through repentance. And listen to me, guys, real carefully. Repentance cannot begin until blame-shifting ends. Repentance cannot begin... You cannot receive total forgiveness until you start taking full responsibility for your sin without making excuses and trying to justify why you're doing what you're doing. I think about the, um, the crossing, how over the last few months, several of us have tried very hard to get everything ready, and one of the most frustrating things about the crossing has been trying to pass inspection. Um, Basically, I didn't know this, but um, when you're trying to open a building to the public like we are doing, there are certain codes that you have to you know, meet and requirements. I didn't know that, and so, but anyways, I learned that. And um, we began over and over to try to meet these codes. What would happen is after we would knock something off our list that the inspector would tell us to do, you know what would happen? He would come back and he'd add more to our list. We'd be like, God, oh, we're never going to get so frustrated. In fact, it's probably more frustrating for, for Rusty than any of us because he's a pastor and he's like, you know, he wants to do pastory things, but yet I'm... Is that a word, pastory? Uh, pastorally? Anyways, I get a break from the crossing every now and then because I get to study for my sermon, but he's there from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. every day just trying to get his stuff knocked out. And true story, on Monday I went up to him, and I was like, hey, Rusty, what you doing? He said, oh, I'm just listening to a sermon on suffering, which he really was. <laughs> and he's like, he was like, really? He listened to a sermon, and he's like trying to fix something. And uh, I was like, all right, buddy, have a good one. And so, um, and so it's been frustrating. Now, here's what could have happened. When the inspector came... Here was the temptation. He'd give us another list. You know what the temptation was? And he'd say, this is wrong with the inside of your building. This is wrong with the inside of your building. You know what my temptation was? To say, you know what? I bet we're better than about 95% of other buildings. You know what? I bet we're better than the building next door. You know what? At least we've made a lot of improvements. I mean, come on. I mean, this building's safer and better than it's ever been. And so how about you give us a pass here? How about you stop focusing on the negative and you focus on the positive? But you know what? If I would have kept doing that, guess what? Nothing would have changed. In order for us to meet the code, in order for us to change, we had to take responsibility for what he said was wrong. And by the way, praise God, on Thursday we finally passed inspection. And so we are officially open for business, officially, unofficially. Um, and so it's like a thousand pounds being lifted off. As a matter of fact, some of us last night went and just celebrated together with a steak dinner. And so um, this is the way it really works with repentance. Listen. When someone comes to you and says, this is wrong, or the Holy Spirit begins to convict you, what's your first response? At least I'm not like that person. I'm better than I used to be. Hey, how about you focus on the positive and stop focusing on the negative? If that's your attitude, you'll never experience true forgiveness. If you want to experience true forgiveness, you have got to take responsibility for what is wrong inside of you. You have to have a full, clean confession that says, yes, this is wrong. Yes, it needs to be fixed. That's exactly what we see with David. And that's the first step to experience the true forgiveness. But it doesn't just stop there. Not only do we need a full, clean confession, but we also need a deep heart renunciation from that sin. I say, what are you talking about? We look again in verse 4. 
And this is huge right here, by the way. Uh, the first one I didn't have to spend a lot of time on because I think we all kind of get that. I'm willing to bet 90% of us don't get what I want to talk about right here. And that's, I'm not trying to, that's not preacher talk, trying to exaggerate just to get your attention. I just really believe this is that important. In verse 4, David says, against you, talking to God, against you, God, and you only, have I sinned. Now, does that seem a little off to you? Against you and you only, God, have I sinned. What about Bathsheba? Did he sin against her? Yeah. What about Uriah? Did he sin against Uriah? Yeah, he killed him. How in the world can David then say, against you, God, and you alone have I sinned? What is he doing here? Well, he's using hyperbole. He's doing what Jesus did whenever Jesus said to his followers, hey, unless you're willing to hate your mother and father, you cannot follow after me. Jesus didn't literally mean you have to hate your mother and father. What he was saying is this. He was saying that your devotion to me should be so intense that it makes the love you have for your parents look like hate compared to the love you have for me. This is the same thing David is doing here. When David says against you and you alone have I sinned, David, no, he's not a moron. He knows he's sinning against Bathsheba. He knows he's sinning against Uriah, but here's what he's saying. The sins that I committed against them is nothing compared to the sin I've committed against God. What he is saying in here is, you want to know why I physically committed adultery with Bathsheba? It's because I first spiritually committed adultery with God. If you get this, it's a game changer. Because what David is saying is ultimately behind every sin is a sin. What he is saying is the reason we see sins on the outside with our actions is because we first have sin within the depths of our heart, on the inside. And, and we know this is true. For example, if you lie, think about this. If you lie, why do you lie? If you lie, why do you lie? Now, it's easy whenever we catch someone in a lie to say, you're lying, repent of lying. But what you have to see is there is a sin behind the sin. There's a sin behind the lying. For example, some people lie because they want everybody else to think good of them. Or they don't want someone to look down on them. So for them, what's the sin behind the sin? They care more about what others think of them than what God thinks of them. Does that make sense? Some people lie because of money. They cheat on their taxes or do whatever else because they want more money for them. What's the sin behind the sin? They love money more than they love God. For others, they lie because they're afraid if they tell the truth, it might inflict some pain on them in some way, shape, or form. And so for them, they love their comfort more than they love God. It's the sin behind the sin. And listen, because this is true, when you sin, listen to me, guys, if you want to experience true, life-changing forgiveness that you are longing for, what you have to realize is when you sin, ultimately, you are not just breaking some rules. Ultimately, you are breaking God's heart. Because you are taking something else, and you are putting it in the place of Him. When you believe that, it changes how you repent. Have you ever heard anybody say at the end of a prayer, it's almost kind of like this little checklist, and Father, forgive us of our sins and all the things that we've failed to do or whatever. Have you ever kind of heard anybody say that? Forgive me my sins. Forgive me my It's like this general blanket statement. But whenever you actually understand this, it changes 
how you ask for forgiveness. When you pray, Father, forgive me, it goes from being very general to being very specific and very personal. And, and I can give you an example of how I've done this even in my own life today. When I woke up this morning, I, I felt this anxiety in my stomach. And I knew like, it's not supposed to be there, be anxious and nothing, right? I mean, I was sinning in my anxiety, and so I had to stop and ask the Spirit to search my heart. And you know what, basically, my anxiety, what was going on, the sin behind the sin, is basically, the reason I was feeling anxious is because there was, there was a part of me thinking, you know what, I hope that y'all like me, leave liking me more than you like God. And so I need to make sure I present this really well so that you'll leave thinking, he's a good preacher. And I was a little anxious, like, I wonder if I'll be good enough. There's another part of my heart that, that in, in evil that I was sitting there thinking, what I do determines my worth. If I come here and I preach a good sermon, that means I'm more valued. I'm more, I should be more worthy. And if I don't, that means that I'm not. And so for me in that moment, to, to confess the sin behind the sin was this, rather than saying, hey, God, forgive me my anxiety. It was saying this. And think about how much more personal this is. Father, forgive me that I care more about what they think of me than I do about what they think about you. Forgive me for thinking that I, as your creation, is more, are more worthy of worship than you as the creator. Forgive me that I care more about my work and what I do than what Christ has done for me. Listen, guys, only when that happens will you begin to experience true forgiveness. A true forgiveness that takes you from feeling guilt to feeling grace. That takes you from shame to salvation. This is what we learn in this passage. There are scores of people, listen, scores of people in this world, do you realize this? People that don't even claim to be Christians, that whenever they sin, they feel remorse. Tons of people, when they sin, they get upset, they weep, they feel bad. But have you ever noticed how afterwards, give it a few weeks, they're basically the same person? Anybody know anyone like that? Still doing the exact same things? One reason is because they have yet to take full responsibility for their sin. And the other is because they have not seen that when they sin, they're not simply trampling God's heart, but they're actually trampling his love. And this does not break their heart. They do not grieve this. And therefore, they don't change. Because in the end, you want to know why people are grieving? In the end, they're not really grieving their sin. They're just grieving the consequences of their sin. You understand the difference there? Let me share this story, I think, that will illustrate this. Four years ago, I met a girl. I was speaking at a medical clinic. Met a girl that was there that was uh, a meth addict. She was a cutter. She had just had her 13-year-old daughter taken away from her. The Spirit led me to, to talk with her, connect with her. And so I gave her my cell phone number and uh, said, Hey, if you ever need any help, call me. Call my wife. We would love to be able to help you the best we can. Well, three months later, guess what? The Green County Jail called me and said, Hey, um, we have an inmate up here that was just busted with meth. And she gave us your number and requested that you come and see her. So I go to the jail, and over the next five weeks, I begin to go with her through the story of God. I begin to share with her the gospel. And you know what happened? As we were sitting there, she just began to cry. She began to weep, and she says, oh, I want to change. I want to be different. I, I want to give my life to Jesus. Yes, I don't want to be dealing with meth anymore and addiction. I want to run with these people. I start running with these people. And so I run back to our missional community. This is when we had uh, two missional communities at the time. Run back to them and said, you know what? I think this girl has really repented. We need to bail her out of jail. So our missional community gets all the money together. We pay her bond. We get her in the Agape house because she wanted a Christian-based rehab. And within two weeks, I'm saying, like, man, this is working. I mean, she's like, she's really repented. She's fallen off Jesus. And within two weeks, you know what happened? She ran away. She left. 
And I was devastated, but a couple days later, she called back. She said, I realized that was a mistake. The agape house won't take me back, but I really do. I mean it. I want to change. I don't want to be this person. And so I go, I pick her up, and I said, okay, what I'll do is I'll get you into the mission outreach. I've got a friend there. I'll go talk to him. And so she gets in the car with me. We get her clothes. We go to the mission outreach. I said, wait right here. I'm going to go explain the situation. I'll come back and get you, and we'll find you your bed. I go in there, talk for 15 minutes. I come back, and you know what? She's gone. Her stuff's gone. I've never seen her again. I've heard about her. Matter of fact, I talked to her probation officer not long ago. It said that she's uh, sharing some stuff. And so, but haven't seen her. Still struggling with all this stuff. Now, here's what's interesting. In that same time period, because of this girl, I met Brooke, who was in the Agape house at the time. And her and BJ had recently gone through some of the same stuff with, with addiction to drugs. But I look at the situation now, several years later, and I think, why is it that they're sitting here on the front row their leadership, they've got a home, get your kids back, you're a, a missionary in your workplace. Why? What's the difference there? You know what the difference is? They truly repented. This other girl didn't have repentance, she had self-pity. There's a major difference between remorse and true repentance. There is such thing as a worldly sorrow, and some of you have experienced it, and you're not really sorry about your sin against God, you're sorry about the consequences from your sin. And until you become sorry about your sin, you cannot experience true life-giving repentance that leads to true forgiveness. True repentance, guys, is taking full responsibility for your sin. It's grieving that you have sinned against God. And whenever you confess that and you take that grief to Him, you can experience the forgiveness and the freedom that you have been longing for. The freedom from the power and the penalty of sin in your life and the power of sin against others that they've committed against you. This is something that you can experience this morning. But the question is, how? How do you experience it? I mean, some of you have been hurt in deep ways. Some of you still, you sit here just entangled with your own sin. So how can you experience forgiveness and extend that forgiveness to others? And I think the answer is found in verse 1. If you look with me again, when David is praying, he says to God, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. The Hebrew word here for steadfast is a word that means unconditional and undeserved love. The reason David is reminding himself of this steadfast love of God is what he's reminding himself is this, and listen, this is so important. He's reminding himself that his relationship with God could never be earned. That's one thing he's reminding him. It could never be earned. He could never do enough to impress God. But on the same side, what he's also saying is he says, because God's love cannot be earned, it therefore cannot be unearned. So just as I can't do enough to get God to love me and accept me, I can't do enough to get Him not to love me and not accept me as long as I'm continuing to look to Him, to His grace and His mercy. And you see, the reason David is reminding himself of this is because he is at the same time reminding himself that, you know what, I am completely unworthy. Because of my sin, I deserve judgment, I deserve wrath, I deserve hell, but because of God's grace and unconditional love, I can still have confidence that even after all I've done here, that God is with me and that I am with Him. And what you need to see today is that if David can have that kind of confidence, how much more confidence should we have knowing the full revelation of Jesus Christ? Do you realize that after David got Bathsheba pregnant, she actually went on and had their child, and within a matter of days, that child died. And David, we can't go back and read the story, whenever his son died, he really felt like it was God saying, I'm going to make your son pay the price for your sins, David. 
That's what he felt like was happening. But then the prophet Nathan comes to him and he says, no, 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 no. Like, obviously, God did have a reason for taking your son, but actually, your sins are paid for. Your sins have been removed, David. And you know how we know this is true? Because when we fast forward and we look at the cross, what happens at the cross? Think about this. How beautiful is this? We know when we see at the cross that David's son did not have to die for David's sins. Why? Because God's son died for David's sins. And he died for your sins, and he died for my sins. And only whenever you begin to embrace this grace and this mercy, you realize that, man, I deserve enough hell, but instead of me getting death, God sent his own son to die for me. Can you really begin to taste forgiveness? Experiencing forgiveness starts with saying, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I'm screwed up. Yes, I am worse than I could ever imagine. And my sin is ultimately a sin against God. It is me basically giving God the middle finger with my life. It's me sinning against him more than anybody else. Yes, it starts there, but it does not end there. It starts with looking at the sinfulness of our heart, but then it ends with looking at the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. It ends by looking up at the cross and seeing him looking down at you and me through the corridors of time and seeing every single sin you would ever commit and I would ever commit. Do you know that Jesus knew before he died every sin that nobody else knows about? He knew about it. And yet in the greatest act of love in human history, you know what he did? He stayed on the cross. He went through agonizing, excruciating pain. He took on the wrath of God for you and me, knowing everything that we would do against Him. He said to Peter, I could send 10,000 angels right now to wipe out everybody. I could end this whole thing. I do not have to go through this. I lay my life down. Nobody takes it from me. And yet with the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. And who was that joy? It was you. That was the joy that he knew through his atonement at one minute, at one time, that he would be able to get God, his children, back because of his sacrifice. On the cross, isn't it amazing that as people are crucifying Jesus and they're cursing him and mocking him, he does not curse them and mock them, but what does he do? He says, Father, forgive them. Today, some of us in here have mocked God. Actually, no, all of us in here have mocked God. We have belittled him. We have cursed him, and many of us have done it gladly. And if we look up at the cross, and we trust in this love, and in this grace, and this mercy, we can hear Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We can experience this love. We can experience this forgiveness that leads us not only from being freed from the penalty and the power of sin, but then extending that same forgiveness against others or to others who have sinned against us. What's amazing about the story with Elizabeth Elliot is after she moved in with this tribe and she preached the gospel to these people, one by one by one, the tribe would be converted to Jesus. Nearly the entire tribe would give their lives to Christ. And listen to this. Listen, this is a true story. Go research it all you want. Eventually, Elizabeth and Jim Elliot's daughter grows up she gives her life to Jesus, and you know who baptized her? The same man who had killed her husband years or killed her dad years earlier. He had become a Christian, and he ended up baptizing Jim Elliot's daughter in the same river that he had killed her father years earlier. Forgiveness is a powerful, powerful thing. It is something that we all want. It is something that we all need. 
and it is something some of you have never experienced. Man, I hope today that changes. Some of you in here, you know why you've never experienced forgiveness? It's because you're flippant about your sin. Your sin is a huge deal. It is such a big deal, it took the death of Christ on the cross to make it right. It is like a tiger, it is like a beast that is at your door, and if you refuse to kill it, listen to me guys, if you refuse to kill your sin, it will eventually kill you. It will eventually drive you into the ground. Some of you here, you're flipping about your sin. I just ask you, for some of you, when's the last time you felt the weight of your sinfulness? I tell people all the time, the longer I become a Christian, the more I realize my need for Jesus. The longer I've been a Christian, is not the more I kind of do this, man, I'm pretty good. Actually, the longer I'm like, golly, like, if you're not enough, Jesus, I'm in big trouble. When's the last time you've mourned your sin? You've been broken over. Some of you, you have never received forgiveness because you're flippant. Others in here, it's not, the reason you haven't received forgiveness is not because you make too light of sin, you make too much of sin. And what I mean by that is, is you think that your sin can be greater than God's grace. That's a lot. When you look at the cross, you need to be reminded today that just as there is no sin so small that it doesn't deserve damnation, there is no sin so great that it cannot be forgiven. No matter who you are or what you've done, you can with confidence right now, this morning, pray to the Father because of Jesus. Father, forgive me of my sins. And you can, no matter who you are or what you have done, you can taste forgiveness, true, life-changing forgiveness. And as a result, you can then be a person. We can then be a community known for forgiveness who can forgive one another and can forgive others when, not if, but when they sin against us. I'm going to ask that you will stand with me this morning. I'm going to ask that the band will come forward and those preparing communion. And I want us to pray. I want us to ask, as we always do during this time, for the Spirit to search our hearts, to see, is there any area, right now I want you to ask the Spirit to say, is there any area where I'm hanging on to bitterness? Any area where I'm hanging on to hurt? Where I'm refusing to let others go? What you need more than anything is to be reminded today and to feel the fact that God is not holding your sins against you. Father, I pray right now for each man, for each woman that is here, that they will be wrecked by how sinful they are. But that they will find absolute healing in your grace, in your love, and in your mercy. I pray that no one here today leaves in guilt, but leaves overwhelmed by your grace. And I pray that as a result, that we will be a community that when people in our, our fight clubs or our missional communities or at work sin against us, that we'll be quick to forgive, that we will love our enemies just as you have loved us and taken us from being your enemies to being your beloved children. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.